Well, thank you everyone for coming. Uh, this is going to be fun. Uh, this session is entitled Conflict as a Gift, so hopefully uh, you're in the right spot. Uh, I'm Nick DeCoster. I'm an administrator at Grand Rapids Christian High School. Um, Sam, am I coming through in the back? Can you hear me? Okay, great. Um, I'm presenting with uh, Christian School uh, conspirator here, Larry Borst, one of our Bible and theology teachers. Um, and then we're um, presenting also with one of our partners, friends, new friends, uh, Clint Westbrook from the Colossian Forum. And they'll introduce themselves uh, as we get started this afternoon. Uh, we just ate lunch, so let's stand up together and let's do this liturgy. Um, you've done this before, so you know when it comes to the bold print um, that you come in uh, and that's where you talk in a very bold manner. This is a psalm of David, um, so let's do it justice. Um, I will read the non-bold print. Hasten, O God, to save me. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May those who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha! Aha! Turn back because of their shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Lord, do not delay. Thank you. You can be seated. Awesome job. Aha, aha. I feel like David gets me sometimes. Well, have you noticed any conflict uh, in your school this year? Any divisiveness? Uh, does it feel different this year, though? Uh, political division, culture wars, sexuality, uh, emerging gender identities, masks and vaccinations. DEI initiatives. Conflict is everywhere. And maybe that's not new, but the intensity seems higher. And each one of these topics is certainly on the doorstep of our schools. Well, for me, I almost had a News 8 moment the other day. You know what this is? This is when you mess up so bad, you get on the news. Call it a News 8 moment, or Wood TVA if you're from the Grand Rapids area. The title of this News 8 story, had I been on the news, would have been Administrator Fired. No good deed goes unpunished. Well, maybe that's just how I felt at the time. You see, I was just out monitoring morning break one day, minding my own business, of course, and I noticed a small group of students sort of pointing and eyeing in a certain direction. As I looked around the corner, I saw what was drawing their attention. There was a student wearing a large, a very large and divisive flag as part of their outfit. My first thought, of course, was, oh crap. <laughs> but then I quickly started to think about dress code, 
the student safety. Had she thought this through, how big of a disruption might this make? What is my role right now? Well, I approached her and asked if we could have a conversation in my office. We talked in my office, and despite my best efforts to approach that conversation with warmth and grace, it did not go well. It was pretty emotional for this student from the outset. It also didn't help that I didn't have a really good, close relationship with her. Well, as it turns out, the student had thought this through, and they had even told their parents of their intent to wear the flag as part of their outfit. I tried to help the student see other perspectives, to engage her thought process, to help her understand that certain symbols, including flags, can create division and a distraction in our community. Nonetheless, she left my office pretty upset. Five minutes later, I had a long email in my inbox from this student's parent. Words like, I'm very disappointed. I can't believe an administrator. The school is the problem. Targeting. Keep hate speech in check. And the signature line of this email not only revealed who this parent was, but also the significant role they played in our DEI community. News 8 moment is what was going through my mind right then and there. So I knew I had to call this parent right away. And you can probably uh, emphasize, empathize with the way I was feeling, right? I wanted to go find a hole and hide. Fortunately, I had some tools in my tool belt. I called the parent right away, mostly out of fear for the situation escalating. And when the parent picked up, I could sense anger and frustration in their tone. And I just opened by saying, hey, thank you so much for taking my call. I know we have a lot to talk about, and I really hope we can each look back on our conversation and feel like our shared Christian virtues were present. While I hope to help you understand my perspective and my thought process, I also want you to know that I'm willing to learn and grow too. Our shared Christian virtues, pointing to the common ground of our faith, it completely changed the tone and direction of our conversation. Conflict is not fun. And yet, conflict can be a gift. And by the end of this sh very short time with you, we hope that you will see conflict as an opportunity for Christ to form you, to form us as a school community, and to build up our larger community as well.
everybody else. And, and so that seemed kind of wrong to me. And so I started exploring the Colossian Forum. Uh, and, and their claim was sort of like, well, what does it look like for Christians to act Christian in the face of conflict? So about 10 years ago, the Colossian Forum asked this question, what would it look like to see conflict as an act of worship, as a constructive act of worship for us to grow closer to God and to each other, instead of as a destructive force, an inherently destructive force? So 10 years ago, we set out, and we're in the faith and science world, uh, talking about creation and evolution. And uh, we've, we've brought in from there, but 10 years ago, our, our founder would tell you that you sort of had to convince people that this was a problem, like conflict is an issue, you have to tell, you know, uh, today not so much. Uh, in the New York Times, uh, Arthur Brooks writes that we are the most polarized that we've ever been since the Civil War. One in six people are no longer talking to a relative since the 2016 election. And here's the hopeful part, 93% of Americans want to be better. Maybe it doesn't feel that way, but... Uh, it's true. Most people want to be better. They don't know how, and Christians are not leading the way in how. And we think that if we uh, sort of look at conflict in a different way, that we actually could be the leaders uh, in, in uh, taking a polarized world and pointing it to Jesus. This is kind of an image of explosion, conflict. It was going okay, and then something happened, and boom! It's not going so well anymore. It's smoky, it's dusty, it's nasty. But what if we look at this and we see the beauty of the image? We see the colors against the black background. We see the artistic nature and beauty and constructive way that this explosion is happening. What if we could take this conflict and we could look at it as an opportunity for a new relevance, deeper discipleship, and greater witness? If you're not into the art symbol, how about an engine, a combustion engine? How does a combustion engine work? Well, a combustion engine harnesses the energy around an explosion. And by putting a container around that explosion, it creates a propulsion and a constructive forward-moving force. So what if we as Christians could harness the energy of conflict for discipleship? There's a lot of, conf lot of energy in conflict. Nick felt the energy that day when he was talking to the student. He felt the energy talking to the parent. I'm sure all of you have felt the energy of conflict. What if instead of that energy being an explosion that takes you down, it could be captured to move forward. So here's how the Clash Forum sees conflict and how we would encourage you as the body of Christ to see conflict. God can use conflict to transform us in all sorts of ways. We see conflict as a catalyst. It can move us forward, just like that combustion engine. It can take us places we haven't been before, and it can take us closer to God and take us closer to each other. Conflict can be a searchlight. It can show us things in our own heart that we didn't know were there. It can tell us uh, places of hate that we didn't know were there, places of shame that we didn't know were there, things that come up that you didn't expect because that conflict gives rise to, to what's happening inside. And it can be a classroom. You know, Nick started off that conversation saying, I'm ready to learn from you. And he was willing to take that conflict as an opportunity to learn from the people in the room, to learn from what God might have for them. So uh, we call our way of looking at conflict the Colossian way. We'll talk more later about kind of how the Colossian way looks in a classroom or what it looks like running one of our groups in your, in your school. But this is just kind of a helpful image to see how we think about it. So you see here, there's kind of a, there's two foundations. It's a, there's a deeply biblical foundation. It's rooted in worship. And then we have these sort of three movements, gather, practice, witness, and don't have time to get into kind of how it all works. But uh, the, the biblical foundation for our work comes out of Colossians 1.17. It says, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
So the promise that we have in Scripture is that Christ is already holding together our communities, our relationships, our schools, our classrooms, that Christ is before all of those things. And in him, all of those things are already being held together. And by worshiping together, by taking conflict as an act of worship, we can actually participate in the redemptive work of reconciliation that Christ has already done on the cross. Conflict doesn't feel like a place where we often do that, but we rely on the promise in Colossians to say, show us, Lord, how we might do that more fully. So what this has looked like uh, traditionally for us, we had and still have what's called the Colossian Curriculum. And it's a 10-week small group series. Uh, Larry's going to talk a bit about that in, in the school context. We've got four topics, just light topics, no, no issues around these. <laughs> Origins, like faith, you know, faith and science, evolution, human sexuality, uh, political talk, women and men, so that includes gender issues, transgender. So what we do is bring people uh, together in a, in a room, about 12 to 14 people, with two facilitators, and say, okay, now we're going to have this conversation, and we're going to do it in the presence of God by intentionally inviting him into the conversation. So, easy stuff, obviously. Nothing ever comes up. Uh, actually, what we found is, is surprisingly, people tend to avoid the conversations. So, we actually have to do some work to get people uh, engaged. But, um, again, that, that is kind of a historic problem now. The problem always seems ready to boil over. So, uh, what we've done recently is taken the sort of engine of the Colossian way, and we broadened it into this broader leader training, <clears throat> and in this very high-quality graphic with an arrow <laughs> pointing, we have created something that we're calling the Wayfinder uh, Leadership Training and Development Program. And, and functionally, that program uh, teaches uh, leaders in schools and in Christian churches to uh, more effectively take the energy of conflict and harness it into uh, an opportunity for growth. It's got the same deeply biblical foundation. It's rooted in worship. There are these three movements, gather, practice, witness. And uh, it's, it's sort of broadened into this general uh, uh, ability to do this in any conversation. And Nick's example of how to do that was actually a fantastic one. So this is kind of where, where the program is heading. And I just kind of want to give a taste of how this works, because it's hard to conceive of all these concepts and how these concepts work practically. So I'm going to just start by naming the goal of a Wayfinder conversation. And for us, in, in your classroom, and if you're an administrator in your school, our goal is missional flourishing. If you're in a Christian school, your mission inherently is to build up the kingdom of God and to witness to the work that Christ has done. And we believe that we can get to missional flourishing by living more deeply into our Christian commitments. So our two basic Christian commitments should look relatively familiar. Love God, love neighbor. Greatest command is love God in the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. So if, uh, if we're doing that well, or we're at least making some progress in the whole Christian thing, and then we want to do that because we believe that it furthers God's kingdom. So if you're looking at sort of graphically, you say, well, what's the goal of anything we do? Missional flourishing. Your school moving into the flourishing of the mission, the flourishing of God's kingdom, and the growth of your students and your teachers uh, more into the likeness of Christ. So what happens as you're along that path and you're starting to do pretty well, you're like, oh, I got some good programs, we're doing a good job, boom, mismanaged conflict happens. The news eight moment, the student with the t-shirt, the conversation in the classroom, the teacher makes a misstep, the administrator says something to the reporter. What do these mismanaged conflicts look like? What do they cause? I'm sure some of these feel familiar to you. Stress. I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do. Broken relationships. 
again, Arthur Brooks says one in six people has, has lost a relationship. Exhaustion. Maybe you're feeling that today. You're just exhausted. Like, I don't even want to talk about conflict. I don't want to think about conflict because it's everywhere and I'm tired. Or people just leave. There's a, a zero tolerance policy for uh, a misstep, so people are out. So what we've, what we've done is said, okay, how can we take these mismanaged conflicts and somehow uh, uh, use our Christian commitments to transform them into something else, and that something else is what we call conflict transformation. So how can you use conflict to transform your relationships to each other and transform your relationships to God and do it in a way that honors those around you? Well, just to make this practical, uh, I want to talk a bit about what does Jesus show us in conflict? How does this look uh, in Scripture when, when Jesus encounters uh, uh, an issue? And to do that, I want to talk about uh, the example of um, uh, Jesus with the Pharisees who bring forward uh, a woman accused of adultery. Really complicated situation. Jesus is given a binary choice. You can go with A or you can go with B. The law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say, Jesus? Are you going to follow the law? Are you a heretic? So what does Jesus do? He doesn't choose the binary. He transforms the moment and says to them, let you without sin cast the first stone. And he turns it on its head because he looks to the Pharisees and he says, how are you going to live out the call that God has on your life? And of course, we know how that story ends. Uh, Jesus was left standing alone with a woman and he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's a remarkable passage because Jesus rejects the rules that the Pharisees set in front of him. And then he says to the woman two things, I don't condemn you, and go and sin no more. And we believe that when you transform conflict, you can actually do those same two things. And you can enter into what Jesus shows us by transforming those lose-lose choices into a deeper love of God and a discovery of the image of God in the other, of the Imago Dei in the other. Okay, so, so we do these things that I said rooted in worship with that deeply biblical foundation. And there's a the core of our work, which you're going to hear uh, later talk a bit about through the, the small groups, is uh, this notion of practice. So we, we engage in these historic Christian practices, and it's kind of, if you can just think about, you know, what would it be like if you're in a fight and you both stop and you say, uh, let's pray together? It'd just be weird, because in, in, we're so used to taking our conflict, and this is what happened in the legal world, right? This is why I stepped out of it. You'd be in this conflict, and if someone even suggested something Christian-y, it was just kind of like a sledgehammer. It was just like a bludgeon. Well, I'm going to sort of say this scripture. I'm going to do this thing because I want to beat you in the rules that we sort of agree to. But no one's actually thinking about the broader Christian virtues that we promised to live into. So this act of worship is to be with God, to deepen your love of uh, one another, and to recognize those deep differences as a gift instead of a threat. Because Jesus uh, has, has given us the gift of reconciliation. He's already done that work. So what do these practices look like? Well, again, uh, the spiritual practices, we don't have time to go into all these, but um, we, we, we frame these conflicts through prayer and through worship together. And we're actually going to experience it a little bit in the room, so don't leave, but it'll be great. So there's, you, you put these spiritual practices, worship and prayer in the midst of conflict, and as you do that, you as a leader will become more aware of disagreements because you will be creating a space for people to say, I'm not so sure about that. I read that differently. Here's what I think. And maybe, again, maybe you're going, hey, I don't need to create this space. It's already happening. 
And if that's the case, then those practices become all the more important as you bring a vision for conflict to your, your, your uh, classroom, to your board table, and you look to transform conflicts into opportunities instead of destructive forces. And then by setting that example, just like Nick did on the phone, those mismanaged conflicts start to reduce because you've actually created an atmosphere of safety and of forward-looking you know, transformation in your school. So we do a training, this Wayfinder training, um, just real quickly what it looks like. We, we cast the vision, uh, we do a deep dive into the vision we've talked about here, the sort of theological and um, uh, sociological basis of how we view conflict, and we give you a set of those practices to say, here's how you bring worship into the moment. Here's how you listen to the other, you see the image of God in the other, here's how you ask the questions and set the table, um, just like Nick did with that parent. And then we workshop together. We take the administrators or teachers together can start workshopping what it might look like to do this in your classroom, in your school, uh, at your board table, at your, uh, with your students, or with your teachers. So that shared vision is going to uh, help you understand conflict as an opportunity for growth and witness, and then you develop the skills and the systems. Again, having to move kind of faster just because of, of time, but I do want to get to sort of the takeaways, which is that uh, as you engage these things, it becomes practical. So we move from the sort of philosophical, theological, into how at the board table you can actually have a conversation that honors God and each other, and how when you're talking to those students, you can do it in a way openly, honestly, to bring critical conversations into more Christ-like interactions. And then uh, when you're at having staff conversations, what do we do about masks, what do we do about curriculum, what do we do about different uh, policy choices, you're able to have those conversations in more productive ways. Um, it's a lot to get through in a short amount of time, so I would encourage you, please uh, ask questions afterwards if you have them. There's a little sort of connection card going around. You're welcome to take a look at that. Um, but now we're actually going to do the work together because all the vision is great, but Nick is going to lead us in an exercise um, where we actually get down to the nitty-gritty. Thanks, Clint. All right, so we're going to practice something right now. Um, and in order to do that, uh, we're just going to have to raise the temperature, not the temperature of heat or cold, um, but some EQ temperature. Um, so let's not forget uh, the theological foundation right, that, that Clint already referenced. Christ holds all things together. And we know this through Paul's words, we've already recited this today, but he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Therefore, if Christ is already holding us together right now, we are safe to disagree. So take a moment now and read the question, and then just take two to three minutes and share your answers uh, with one or two of your neighbors. Go ahead.
doing the faith remind us of God's presence. It connects us as believers and helps move us toward common ground. Therefore, actually practicing Christian practices in the midst of conflict, and I mean right in the middle sometimes, can hold us together and also build community, as awkward as it might feel sometimes. So let's just practice this now. So go ahead and let's engage our hearts in worship. If you'll stand with me, let's sing the doxology. And again, your loudness will block out my off-keyness, so I would appreciate that. I don't even know how to get this started, but we're going to do it. Are you ham- having with this person? 
and I just said, shut up! Uh, I don't want to do the collage and pour them now! Uh, and uh, I just went nuts, and I didn't get any commercial. Um, actually, they, they needed somebody, and I think they just made this up, but they, in the commercial, they needed somebody with a picture of somebody laying hands on somebody's shoulder and they use my shoulder. Uh, and I think that was, uh, they just made it up. Uh, but, um, but anyway, um, it, that, you know, we have to admit our sin here. And I, I, my ego was big and I wanted to be right. And I thought this was cool. And, you know, that's a fun sin to admit. But I have also, you know, when you look at some of these practices, some of the practices, we should confess things. You know, I have said things about gay people that are horrible. And I thought it was funny growing up. I mean, I, I was, no, I don't want to blame it on the 70s. I have said horrible things. Um, uh, often in, when I'm in a conflict with somebody or I want them to think my way, I just think I am where I am right now and they should be where I am without that long process I took to get wherever I am. And I'm not even sure I'm always in the right place. So um, anyway, uh, how do you bring this into the schools? Do it better than I did. Um, um, we've tried three things. Uh, we, um, we sent some teachers to Colossian Forum for um, training on how to run small groups. And uh, we ran groups on um, gender and uh, um, uh, gay marriage kind of uh, group. And we ran one on um, origins, which actually, I thought those debates were over. And we got, um, the, the problem with running these small groups, there's maybe two or three in schools. One is kids are too nice. Once they get in a group facing each other, they don't, I mean, they, they'll not like you down the hall. But once they're in the group, they're really nice. It was actually in the origins one that we were able to um, uh, dial up enough heat uh, on the second to last day, and it was great. Um, every, all the other ones, things stayed a little bit too nice. The other problem with small groups in the school is it only reaches a certain number of kids. These are usually 10-person groups, so we ran two groups. And then the third problem is it's just a scheduling nightmare. I mean, kids are busy, and, and, and it's hard to fit anything into the school day. Um, the second way we've done it, and this was great, we ran two Wintrum classes on difficult issues um, uh, last uh, Wintrum, and um, those you were able to bring the, the, the heat up well at sometimes and, and drop it down, and, and those went very well. Um, the difficulty there is there's always pressure to get more kids in those groups, and it's hard to keep it a 10-person group, and you really need 10, 12, uh, 14, but um, during those, you know, kind of enrichment times of the classes. And then uh, uh, you can integrate them into the lessons. And we kind of did that two ways. Um, one way we did that is, um, uh, or I have done that, is you, know, you just take on some difficult issue. And um, uh, there's my handout that I use on same-sex orientation and gay marriage. And I talk about this in the New Testament class. Um, um, I go to a church with lots of college professors and psychologists and they asked me to present this at the church I go to, and I just said, you know, you got way smarter people than me, but well, okay, I'll, you know, I did it. Um, the um, emotional response from people in my church mirrored only much more intensely the emotional response from students. Um, right after the, um, uh, the, she's got to be the smartest lady in our church, and she's kind of, 
she's cool now. And um, uh, um, uh, right afterwards, and she's tough, I was scared. Uh, but right afterwards, she walked up to me quickly and grabbed my wrist. And, and the first thing she said was, I wish you were my teacher. Um, the, um, um, and, and, I, uh, and, and she said, it, it's so nice to see someone talking openly about this, to admit that it's a difficult problem, and to respect and talk about all the sides in an easy way with a smile on your face. And she said, this is a problem that takes people 50 years to figure out, and, and, and you gave a sense, I don't know how I did that, but just to admit that these are difficult problems. I often start with my students and say, this is the debate of your generation, peace out, good luck. Uh, <laughs> and, and you can either you know, take your opinion and run, or, or you can engage. Um, the second thing, uh, uh, and then the next day at a gas station, the lady walked up to me and said, it was so nice to see a spectrum. All I saw were the two sides that don't like each other very much. And, and there's a whole bunch of views in the middle. And she just said that was just so relieving to know, oh, I'm a, I'm a two. I, I don't know what, you know, but um, um, people really like that. And, and, then, um, and then the last person to talk to me uh, said, oops, uh, the last person to talk to me said, um, it was so nice that you, uh, at the bottom of the sheet, I say, Everybody wants to be accepting, um, um, the conservatives and the liberals, but the liberals claim it as their own. And, and I just said, no, we just maybe have some slightly different ideas of accepting, but it's not as though one side is looking to condemn everybody and you know, start fires. And, um, um, I, it, it, and that was, uh, you know, his chin was shaking a little bit when he said it, and he just said, you know, I really, really appreciated that, that you know, I, can, I want the best for people. Um, so anyway, that was kind of the, a nice, nice thing about in, in the classroom. Oh, um, the other way that we have bring it into the classroom uh, is, um, is, is, is use some of the principles uh, of Colossian Way uh, in just everyday lesson plans and what we do um, uh, and, and what we teach. I mean, we teach parts of it now. Um, and uh, we came up with, uh, Nick and I mostly came up, well, no, we, we all had some input on, we kind of came up with a top ten list of things we've learned from the Colossian way. And that's on the blue handout. And since you can't go over ten things in depth, we thought we'd each cover one of the ten things that really struck us. So Nick is going to talk about the first one. Well, Wicked Problems is... Um my favorite, and it speaks, I think, a lot to um, school leaders in particular. Um, so this is, what we're talking about is wicked problems versus technical problems. Um, and this really identifies um, a lot of the problems invading our school. They're called wicked problems, not because they're evil, um, but because these problems are resistant to change. They are typically long-lasting and they're usually deeply conflicted. Um, so let's check out a real short video and then I'll dive a little bit um, deeper too. Brad, would you mind grabbing the lights for 30 seconds here? Thanks. Sociologists have identified two kinds of problems. 
First, there are tame problems. Tame problems can be straightforward. They can also be ridiculously hard. But tame problems always have a clearly stated, well-defined goal. And once solved, they stay solved for good. Then there are wicked problems. Not wicked as in evil, but as in untamable and tenacious. Wicked problems are like a moving target. They can never be fully solved because they involve differing definitions of the problem. Poverty, racism, human origins, climate change, and sexuality are all wicked problems. Problems that are perceived differently depending on who you talk to. And so, wicked problems tend to divide people with very different ideas about what qualifies as a solution. There is no silver bullet. Wicked problems simply can't be tamed. And the church is not immune. Wicked problems tear at the fabric of community, causing fragmentation, alienation, and mistrust in the very place where division and disunity should never be. Can faith survive these wicked problems, or is an all-out culture war the only option? Wicked problems will never be solved on this side of heaven. But if we rely on Christian virtues as we discuss these matters, we'll find that God has given us everything we need to make progress on these important conversations. The Colossian Way. Truth and... So to best understand wicked problems and how to navigate, and particularly how to lead through them, um, we first need to recognize their opposite, which we would call a technical problem. Technical problems are clearly defined. They're often short-term because they're solvable, right? There's a start and an end, um, and it can be solved by breaking the problem down into parts. Think about the creation of your master schedule, right? All students need a schedule, big problem. So you take all your course requests, you map out um, sections based on those requests, you assign teachers, you assign room, assign class times, problem solved. Not necessarily easy, but we know how to proceed. And let's be honest, these are the types of problems we love as educators and love as administrators because we were taught how to fix them. Wicked problems, on the other hand, are often long-term. They are deeply conflicted with often two or more polarizing viewpoints facing off against each other. Because of the charged disagreement, these problems are even harder to define. With wicked problems, there's little agreement about the goal uh, or about our present situation, much less where to even start and how to solve it. Even worse, we just don't have a system or process for addressing these problems. We're building an airplane while flying it. Different values and perspectives come into conflict at every point with wicked problems, whether in figuring out what we're trying to accomplish or how to go about working on it. With all of the conflict, it's easy for our relationships to break down. We fragment into different camps and become enemies in the name of addressing these problems. Sometimes these problems are so charged that when we face them, we typically succumb to decision paralysis. We don't know what to do about X, so we simply avoid it. We avoid it and we avoid it. 
And simply adding an expert or a consultant or just accumulating more information is not going to fix the issue. So let's look at an example together. Uh, let's look at masks in schools, for example. This is a wicked problem. Nevertheless, many have tried to make this a technical problem with the goal of solving it quickly. How many droplets come out of your mouth and nose with or without a mask? That's measurable and solvable, right? Let's just decide based on that. The wicked side of this, however, would be something like this. What's the relationship between schools and teachers and parents when it comes to health and safety and parental authority and the common good? And who makes that decision? You can't even begin to answer these questions from a technical perspective. There is no agreement on the starting point, and it's even harder to agree on what we're trying to solve. But this problem and many others get shoehorned into a technical issue, and everyone then pretends that they solved it. But they haven't, because the problem is much more wicked or complicated than that. And I believe this is true of other wicked problems we're facing right now, too. Human sexuality, emergent gender identities, DEI initiatives, things we've talked about uh, at the beginning. So, how do we deal with these problems? Well, the reality here is we could probably spend an entire day or an entire conference on this. We had PD around this yesterday. And if you want to dig deeper here, particularly about leading through wicked problems, I would just encourage you to Google adaptive versus technical problems. There's a ton of research on this. But here's my two main takeaways. I think calling a problem a wicked problem is really helpful. It frees us from having to make a quick decision. And it also allows us to help describe how wicked problems function. And it lets us change the conversation from quick fixes to sustained momentum. We're in this together, as painful as that may be. Number two, and probably most importantly, these problems will require us to lead and facilitate, and to lead and facilitate, and to lead and facilitate. When there may not be one right answer, we can only make progress by doggedly staying involved in the issue. We need to create an environment where all parties are represented and where people feel accepted and loved, even though they disagree or may feel very uncomfortable. Maybe you feel uncomfortable now. We need to look at these issues from lots of different angles to get an appreciation for the different dimensions of these issues. And while doing this, we have to stress our unity, doing our faith, and working toward a resilient group culture where we can address things without fragmenting into camps. And as we do this, we will likely realize there just may not be one simple, clear answer. But we do know that we're not in this alone. He who began a good work will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. All right. Uh, all right, yeah, so the fears and, or the um, technical problem with problem distinction is sort of a big uh, mindset shift. So just a quick, and Nick said it really well, um, name a wicked problem as, as a wicked problem, just to, uh, to dovetail on that. Um, also, if you're, if you're a leader and you're trying to work through a problem, 
name a technical problem as a technical problem too. So uh, there are times when you're not trying to answer the wicked problem. Um, so uh, uh, Nick's talking like a master schedule before. If every time someone was trying to come up with an, like a, a schedule, you came in and you're like, ah, but what is the nature of education? That's not helpful, right, <laughs> as a leader. So, uh, be, like, but it does help if you say, like, we're going to deal with the technical problem now, and I haven't forgotten about the complexity of this problem. That really helps from a leadership perspective. So that's kind of a practical note on that. Um, I want to talk about, uh, again, probably the most practical thing that you can do in the next conversation that you have that seems uh, uh, high tension or rooted in conflict. And that's what we call uh, the love behind the fear. So uh, there are different, different um, uh, schools of thought thinking about this in different ways, but we've named it as, as the love behind the fear. And, and the way this works is that typically when you're presented with an emotion in a conversation, think back to the, the conversation with the student and the uh, activist flag, right? Um, high emotion. Student comes into the office. And uh, what did Nick say? He said, I was thinking about the school code, or the, the, the school dress code. I guarantee that that student is not emotional because of the content of the school dress code. They are emotional because there is a concern that they are trying to protect. You might call it a fear that they're trying to protect, a fear that they aren't seen, a fear that their diversity isn't valued, a fear that their viewpoint isn't valued, that they as a person aren't valued, right? There's a concern there that is underneath the emotion. And behind that concern is a love or a desire, and that desire might be for that student to be, no, to be more fully known and to be more fully part of a community that embraces her, right? And so there's something deep going on, and the presenting emotion is typically not indicative of that thing. So uh, how do you get to the love? Well, uh, there's some probing questions that you can ask in that situation, things like, um, can you tell me more about uh, what's making you feel this way? Or um, what's at stake for you in this? Or what's important to you here? Uh, or sometimes just, just the simple phrase, tell me more. Or would you be willing to tell me more about that? Is an effective way to get from the emotion to the concern to the love. And, and oftentimes when you can do that in a conversation, you'll find that there is a love that you have in common with that person. Or if you're sort of mediating, that those two people have in common with each other. So it's, it's, uh, let's, let's say the love is for the community to be fully inclusive of a, of a diverse population. I guarantee that you share that love as a leader with that student or as a, a leader with the teacher or the teachers in the room. You're going to get to a love that we, especially as Christians, hold in common. And when you can find that common love, then you can start to have conversations about how we can move toward that love together instead of saying, there's your emotion, there's your position, I disagree, you know, uh, the dress code works, you're wrong, right? If you stay at that level, that kind of top tier, you're always going to be butting heads. But if you get to the love, especially the common love, you're going to be able to move forward. So um, that's a practice that you can apply to the very next conversation you have where you feel the heat. Um, you can start to try to understand not just their top level presenting emotion, but what's at stake by asking some good questions. So it's very awesome. Oh, the last part. Um the last one we found really helpful of the top ten was um, um, uh, telling people stories. Um, if you don't know the people behind it, it's easy to hate an idea. Um, uh, when I went to church, um, I had um, when I go over um, the issue of gay marriage in, in the New Testament in class, um, 
the first year I taught it, I took about 15 quotes off my student exam. Uh, and I said, what do you really think? And just great. First of all, one thing was, everybody says young people are in lockstep on this issue. No way. They are all over the place. I mean, there's been some cultural changes, but it, it, it's there all over the place. But when I went to church, I said, just to show you they're not all in lockstep on this, this is off my last exam. And, uh, and then as I went through each quote, I just told a quick story about each student. And it was, you, you could feel, it's, it's quirky, but, and, and, and then, you know, you could feel the temperature change. Um, um, during a Colossian Forum meeting on politics, you spend time uh, with two people saying, this is how I got to where I am politically. And they tell that story. Um, um, know that all of this stuff is embedded in people, and it's just a, a real handy practice to keep in mind. We've got about five minutes left. Um, Nick has something very quick, and if you have any questions, um, yeah, you can email us or stay after. I think we can skip the goal setting, yeah? too, just okay. to get to the... We were going to have you skip a goal, but we only have five minutes left, so we'll, we'll take questions. I think... You know, most importantly, takeaway here is if you're interested in learning more about uh, the Colossian Forum, the Colossian Way, or Wayfinder training for staff in particular, um, I think, Clint, did you leave stuff here? Or there's some of there's, there's cards up here. And um, obviously, Larry and I are happy to answer questions about um, how this gets done in schools. Um, so, yeah, we'll take questions. What do you do with a parent who just wants to sling mud and not want to engage in good faith in uh, the issue at hand, I guess, right? Like they just want to spout off, but they don't want to hide. How do you handle conflict like that? Are you I'm kind of curious. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, what do you do with a parent who just wants to sling mud and then essentially, you know, walk not away? Engage, yeah, just... Not engage at all. Again, I typically do better. <laughs> I typically do better. Principal sitting right over there. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a great great point. I have a very short count, but I am curious. Does anyone else have a suggestion on that one? I, just, I had a parent show up at conferences and we're really upset. We even brought this issue up in a New Testament class. We thought you said too nice of things about the other position and gone. Um, but I, I saw them at the next spring conferences, and I said, hey, you know, uh, um, I, I, uh, uh, I ended up going out for coffee. Um, I said, you know, you said some interesting things. Um, I do think they, they got to they gotta own those statements at some point, but own them in a conversation. And we had a great coffee. Um, at Starbucks at one point she said it's detestable I thought we were gonna get killed nobody looked up from their phone but but I said I don't think it is and, and then she talked about her neighbor and anyway I think there was not movement but growth and, and we got along great but I do think the only advice I would have is try talking later but later uh, you don't want to talk when they're when they're mad because at least you know at that level of man. 
Yeah, so I uh, agree. And two, two things in the moment, I think. Uh, one is, is um, sort of example setting. And so in communication, uh, mirroring is a very like real thing. So um, good chance that if, if you come to the conversation a certain way, they will eventually, if they stick around, mirror some of the ways that you're responding. Because if you shoot back, they're gonna, you're just going to get to a firefight. But, um, so you setting the tone for the conversation is really important. And the other thing is, all of these practices, uh, they're, they're not just like party tricks. You have to genuinely care about the person sitting across from you and believe that they are made in the image of God and have something to offer the conversation. So if, if they even sense that you consider them to be a waste of time, they're out. And, and they're never going to mirror the thing. Like, you're like, okay, it's active listening is stupid. You're annoying me. So you have to actually care about them deeply. And that's like a work of the heart for you to take, you know, in, in your own life and say, like, God, like, conform my heart to yours and, like, help me to see this person as made in your image. Because if we, if we don't bring that genuineness to the conversation, they're going to sniff it out. And they're going to be even more angry because you've just acted like they're a waste of your time. So it's a, it's a work of the heart um, even before some sort of practices. Uh, I'm interested if any, if you know of any schools that have offered this up in parent community. You know, we've done some work with students, but um, uh, so the actual small groups. Yeah, um, I'm not aware of any schools inviting parents into it. Um, we we did just work with a school who was having a public mass discussion and used the caution way format um, for that discussion, and uh, it didn't blow up. So um, that's good. <laughs> So when we started the small groups too, we also had to sort of create a methodology for how we're going to loop parents in on what we're talking about with their kids, particularly because this is a lot of time for students. Each session is an hour and a half for 10 straight weeks, right? Um, and so we were just very straightforward. We shared the curriculum. We let them look at it. We emailed them, and we did ask their permission uh, for their students to participate in the group. And that went a long way. We got a ton of positive responses. Thank you so much for talking about this. And when they can see the materials and see all of the um, faith perspectives that, it's, that we're looking at scripture, that we're praying together, um, that we're worshiping together, um, it really uh, disarmed the conversation. Thank you so much for attending. Uh, have a great